Welcome to the rooftop. This is part three of our three-part series called Blind Luck or Intentional Revival. And the subtitle to this is The Art and Science of Moving People to the Rooftop. You've heard me talk about rooftop leadership. You've heard me talk about the need to inspire people to move up to the proverbial rooftop even when they're reluctant and when they're afraid, when they're angry or distrustful to move up there and, and take action that they otherwise wouldn't take, not because they have to, but because they choose to. In other words, what we're talking about here is creating a movement, addressing and overcoming big problems when you're surrounded, when you're outnumbered, and whether that's restoring a functionally extinct tree like my dad's doing with the American chestnut, whether that's dealing with problems of homelessness and trafficking like Ben and Jess Owens do with We Fight Monsters, or what we did with Operation Pineapple Express and other veteran volunteer groups to help our Afghan allies, or anything in between. This is about addressing and overcoming big problems when you're surrounded and outnumbered. And, and this is part three of three. This one's called Into Action. And to just briefly review part one, we talked about who it takes. And I told you that it takes, you know, really it's a, it's a catalyst. More about that in a second. But that catalyst to build this kind of movement requires a, a combination of John Wick, Lawrence of Arabia, and the Verizon guy. In other words, a relationship-based connector who just happens to be able to apply surgical coercion when it's needed, but only when it's needed. Someone that has an obsession for overcoming wicked problems. And this is the part two part where we talked about what it takes. You've got to have a wicked problem that you're dealing with, an ill-structured, difficult problem that no one person or no one organization can handle. Right? It's, it's ill-formed. It's very, very complex. And so you need to build a community of practice around that thing, a community of practice that has a common belief in solving that problem, a diversity of contribution in terms of the constituents. Um, it has loosely organized business rules of how you all behave. This community of practice should rise up around the problem and drop down when it's no longer needed. And it needs to be fast and agile and able to outpace the terrible aspects of bureaucracy to get things done. It needs to be comprised of a catalyst who is someone, a strategic thinker who has vision, but who also is great at framing a problem by getting the right people in the room and connecting and who's obsessed with connecting the right humans around the problem and then runs the seams to build that community of practice to both frame the problem and then tame the problem where ultimately it can be handed off to a bureaucratic spider type organization, right? The community of practice is a starfish. You cut off one appendage, the next one grows. It's a self-organizing system. The catalysts that comprise that, they don't need credit. They, um, their metric is impact. Their metric is, is relevance. And when they are no longer doing that, they get out of the way, right? Champions also need to be part of this self-organizing system. These are leaders who are in the public space. They're the ones with resources and money and status and rank and structure and knowledge and access and relationships, right? They have the same belief in many ways of solving the problem as the catalyst, but they lack the connection to the ground. They, they lack the connection to the various networks, their own bureaucracy, their own rigidity in the, the spider construct stifles them from reaching to outside organizations, to other like-minded individuals, but with diverse cultural backgrounds or organizational capabilities, they can't reach them. They can't work with them as with much agility as a catalyst does, right? So these champions, they swing a big stick. They can get shit done. They can write a check. They can move resources. They can get an airplane like was the case with Task Force Lahaina. But you need that Amy who comes in there and who runs the seams and who gets the hangar for the airplane and gets the goods in the airplane and then jumps on the airplane and flies with it to Maui and makes sure that the stuff's delivered. Is that champion going to get the credit for the airplane? Yes. You know, Amy may get some, her nonprofit may get some, but at the end of the day, the champion that moved that airplane is probably going to get the credit, and that's the way it is. The catalysts work behind the scenes. They don't need the credit. They, they, they're, they're moving, sticking and moving out of the way, and then they get out of the way, right? So catalysts, champions, and that community of practice are the macro-level components of a self-organizing system that overcomes a wicked problem. But now let's talk about putting it in action. In this podcast episode, we're going to talk about how you do that. And I think what I'm going to use as a background here is the, um, the context of last out. Now, there are some things going on as I record this with Israel right now where Operation Pineapple Express and some others are on the periphery working with some 
really amazing organizations that are on the ground doing the heavy lifting. But I am reluctant to use that as context because I don't feel right now that it's fully developed enough and it's kind of sensitive, so I'll leave that out. And I, I really do think that the, the evolution of the play last out is a good example to talk about, well, A, illuminate what a self-organizing system can look like, and, and then B, how we put it into action, okay? Um, and so let's just talk about it. The, the evolution of last out, first of all, if you've been hiding in a closet somewhere, is that this play um, has been in development for six years it came on the heels of me having a very bad transition from nearly two decades in special forces, a lot of moral injuries, a lot of guilt, and almost taking myself out of this world. And coming on the other side of that, I was connected to a couple of mentors who were storytellers. One of them, a very prolific storyteller, former NFL football player named Bo, who left the NFL after his seventh debilitating knee injury, became an actor, became a playwright, wrote his own play called Runt of the Litter that went off Broadway when he didn't get the kind of acting jobs he wanted. He took his uh, mentor Larry Moss's advice and he wrote his own play. And he starred in that one-person show. And when I met Bo, he showed me the power of storytelling. He showed me that storytelling is a sense-making tool for the brain. It, it heals the brain. It mends the soul. It's a way to make sense of your own lived existence. And the the body's been doing this for 70,000 years, so storytelling was a natural thing for me. It, it, it helped me make sense of the things I couldn't make sense of after leaving the military and get a sense of myself and align with my own life's narrative as the hero in my journey. When that happened, it opened up everything else. Um, I started to bridge the civil military gaps in the civilian world, and I built a for-profit business around my storytelling called Rooftop Leadership, and then I also built a nonprofit called The Hero's Journey, and that my wife and I co-founded, my wife and I, Monty, my, my wife, Monty and I co-founded that to basically help warriors, first responders, and their families find their voice and tell their story in transition. And we did it. We've run workshops. We've had digital storytelling courses. And most recently, well, about six years ago, my buddy Bo said, you should write a play, Scott. You should write a play about the war. And, you know, you should even perform it. It started as a one-person show. It evolved into something much bigger than that, an all-veteran, all-military family member cast. In 2019, we toured the country in a, a U-Haul van, put 28,000 miles on that sucker, and we performed it in 16 cities. And what was so crazy is um, our little island of misfit toys, none of us knew anything about a tour. None of us knew anything about how to do it, yet we did it. And not only did we do it, we performed it for 75 Gold Star families. We performed it for over 5,000 audience members, many of them Korean, Vietnam, post-9-11 war veterans, people who needed this. We did dozens and dozens of uh, PTS interventions with our counselors who traveled with us. And then it went dormant because of COVID. Our second tour season was cut before it even started. And, and, and we went a year with that, and as I saw the mental health of our veteran population continue to erode, I decided, my wife and I decided, that we would turn Last Out into a low-budget film. And so we raised nearly a quarter of a million dollars. And did I mention that we put a shit ton of our own money into this thing? Nope. Well, we did. And that includes with the low-budget film as well. But you know what? We got that thing shot, we got it produced, and we got it up on Amazon Prime. And you can check it out yourself. We did all of this during COVID, and then when the Afghanistan collapse happened, uh, I was pretty vocal about Operation Pineapple Express and everything that was going on with trying to save our allies, and somehow a guy named John Androsik from Five for Fighting saw what we were doing. We connected. He saw the film. He said, Gary Sinise should see this. See this. I said, no shit. I've been trying to get this in front of Gary Sinise for years. And he's kind of busy. And John said, you know what? I can get it in front of him. I'm going to get it in front of him, and he's going to call you. And he did. Days later, I get a call from Gary Sinise, and, and Gary's like, you know, Scott, we did something similar to this with the play Tracers after Vietnam at Steppenwolf in Chicago. And it was so powerful for the Vietnam veterans. And I said, yeah, this is like a modern-day Steppenwolf. He immediately got it, and he said, let's put it on tour. Let's kick it off in Steppenwolf where it started with my play, and then we'll take it on tour around the country. I'd never met Gary Sinise really except once in my life, and all of a sudden he offers to put this thing on a tour, right? A tour that's going to cost over a million dollars, but he, with just the swing of a pin, he did it. Now, 
let's go back. Let's review contextually what we've learned, right? We talked about movements. We talked about catalysts. We talked about champion. In this case, I was the catalyst. I was the person who was connecting, who was running the scenes, who was working kind of behind the scenes, who put this thing together. Yes, I played the lead role of Danny Patton, and I was a champion for the play. But in this case, where we were talking about going bigger with the Sinise Foundation, Gary was the champion. Gary had access to resources. Gary had access to a network. He got me on the Micro podcast, the Marcus Luttrell podcast, a speaker at the Reagan Library on Veterans Day. You see what I'm saying? Every city we went to, Gary was getting on different radio shows and TV shows. Uh, Lester Holt from NBC News, one email from Gary's publicist. Like, that's how it went. But Gary was the champion. And guess what? Guess who got the credit? Gary Sneeze Foundation. Because they took all the risk. And that's just how it goes. And it worked. It worked. We went to nine cities. We had a profound impact. We doubled the number of Gold Star families that we reached. It was a very, very powerful thing. And by this combination of a champion and a catalyst, it worked really, really well. And now we are at a place where we're going to keep going. Right. Monty and I, my wife, we've seen the impact that this thing has had in the world. We see that there is a, her a Herculean lift needed to overcome the moral injury and mental health issues that are facing our, more, our military community right now. I said this in my congressional testimony to the House Foreign Affairs Committee, damn, almost a year ago. And I, and I warned of this, and it's true. It's happening. We're seeing a major uptick in suicide, mental health issues, isolation. It's real. And our play, Last Out, is doing a really good job of helping veterans and their families sit and make meaning of their own lived experience, to let them see that what they went through did matter. And we cover a range of issues. It's not just the veteran. It's the military family. It's the spouse. It's the kids. It's the, ex, you know, even what's going on with the Israeli-Palestinian issue right now, where, where there is so much emotional charge and a, and, a, and a desire for revenge, which is fully understandable. That's covered in Last Out. My character, Danny Patton, falls to his knees as he watches the Pentagon struck. And, and he says, no bullshit, they're going to pay for this. They're going to pay for this. And, you know, this is th – th we're going to do things my way now, my way. And, and, and so for the rest of the play, my character explores the, the, the awesome and horrible power of vengeance and how it can blind you and where it can take you. And that's not to pass judgment on anything that's happening with Israel, but each warfighter will have to make judgments and will be exposed to moral issues as things like this happen. And the play does that. The play allows that to happen. The play allows even civilians to make sense of this thing, right? And so we can move from moral injury to moral recovery. And we are really, really excited now that we're going to take this play um, on the road on our own. It's going, to look, it's going to look different in terms of the logistics. It's not going to have the horsepower of the Gary Sinise Foundation. But in a lot of ways, we will have newfound autonomy and freedom and agility to do things we want to do. And so it's going to keep going. But what I've just given you is the evolution of a movement, is it not? This is the evolution of a starfish. This is a self-organizing system that was formed around my realization that most people in this country six years ago didn't know we were even in Afghanistan, and most of our veterans were questioning what's the point. And so I wrote this thing, and then I built a as a catalyst – uh, community of practice around this. I found cast members that were both actors. I found cast members that were not actors, but they were all veterans or military family members. I found a director in Carl Bury. Carl Bury is a champion. He is someone who understands the acting world. He, is un he understands the theatrical world, and he brought a level of structure and process and impact that we could never have done. He is a champion, right? And, and there is a certain level of contribution that comes from him on that. And this is true for a range of other people who have made this thing possible. Donors, uh, people who donated goods and services, Special Operations Association of America, they're a champion, right? But we, the thing is, this was an evolution. This thing has continued to evolve and grow, and it's fluid, and it's agile, and it's fast, and it is focused on uh, a common focus of informing civilians on the cost of war and validating and healing those who lived it. Right. That's a very simple purpose that a range of diverse contributors are focused on. And now we're continuing to we're going to take it to the next phase. So. With that in mind, I'd like to share with you some lessons that I've learned about 
how to put this into action. The context will certainly be last out, but I'll probably talk some about Pineapple and Task Force Lahaina, where we helped put together an organization that is doing great work to handle the Maui fires. And I'll also talk about um, the, the, the Israeli piece, maybe, some, if it makes sense. So let's get into it. Um, you might want to get your pen out because I think these are principles that are best practices uh, that I've learned in terms of putting a self-organizing system into practice, into play. And I'm, again, I'm kind of using last out as the central contextual example. God, that coffee is so good. My wife makes me coffee. We call it fat coffee. She makes it on Saturday and Sunday. It's the only day I get it. But God almighty, it is so good. All right. We'll leave that in there because that's just, that shit's good. Okay. The first thing that I've learned in um, putting these self-organized systems into play is you've got to have a purpose bigger than you, right? If your purpose is transactional, if your focus is just on I want to be the best at what I do or I want this to be the, you know, I want this to make the most money, that shit's not going to work because people are going to smell you a mile away. That's not to say that what you're doing isn't important for you, right? But it is not going to engender is that a word, babe, engender? I think it is. We're going to leave it. Um, it's not going to engender the kind of support and um, impact that you want from a community of practice. The purpose must be bigger than you. You must be focused on solving something bigger than you. Now, that's not to say that it won't generate revenue. That's not to say that it won't generate wealth. That's not to say that it won't generate outcomes that are somewhat transactional. However, that is not the end game. The end game is impact. Impact. The metric is impact. The metric is relevance. Am I clear on that? Because that's got to be at the epicenter. It's got to be at the apex of what we do here. And if you try to do what I'm suggesting without that, it is like um, it is like trying to to make bread without yeast. <laughs> it won't work. Okay. Um, this is the grist for the mill. You have to have a purpose bigger than you. Okay. The next thing is. Struggle brings opportunity. Now, this, let me tell you what I mean by this. Struggle, according to Daniel Coyle, is a biological necessity. I, I refer to struggle as a universal singular. In other words, it's something that binds us. It's something that we all go through. It's not dependent on race, ethnicity, religion. It's not. We all struggle. We all go through it. And we're either in struggle or we've been in struggle or we're about to go through struggle. And it's relative. Everybody has different versions of it, but we all go through it. Coyle in the little book of talent talks about struggle really as when the brain is confronted with new situations and it has to build new neural pathways, that clunky, awful feeling that you feel as you deal with that new thing, that's struggle. And it is by definition a biological necessity. So struggle in this case brings opportunity. Why? Because everybody's going through it. When you are looking at the problem that you want to solve, whether it is, again, uh, restoring a functionally extinct tree or dealing with trafficking, the reality is we have to figure out how to make that relatable to the people around us, and it's typically through struggle. Now, that's not to say that everybody's trafficked or everybody you know, gives a shit about a tree that's functionally extinct, but there are a lot of people who have climbed trees as a kid. There are a lot of people who lament the lost opportunity for their kids to climb trees or to know what it's like to take a walk in the woods because they live in the city. That is a form of struggle, right? And, and understanding that struggle brings opportunity. And a lot of times, if you're going through it, if you've been through it, if it's been a, I mean, like really jams you up, what I see particularly in veterans and first responders and military family members is initially is this desire to walk away from that struggle, to walk away from it, to not face it, to not confront it, to not move through it. And I get the reasons why. I really do. And I did that myself, and it nearly killed me. What I'm saying is that there is a way through struggle. I call it the generosity of scars, repurposing one's own struggles through narrative in the service of others. You know, I can tell you with my TED Talk, for example, on uh, the generosity of scars and my challenges with mental health over a million views compared to the other two TED talks. It dwarfs them. Why? Because I think this one focuses more on true struggle. 
The two best stories in the world that serve other humans are the stories we don't want to tell other people and the stories we don't want to tell ourselves. Struggle presents opportunities. The stuff you're going through, the stuff that's kicking your ass, presents opportunities to make impact and relevance in the world and build a movement. Okay, next is movement and meaning are inextricably linked. I was just talking to my mom about this the other day. My mom, Anita, she's gone through an epic battle with cancer. It's been rough, man. Uh, five chemo treatments, multiple radiation treatments. I mean, just tough. And she's, you know, 80. And it has been extremely hard on her. Um, and now she's done with it. And she's on the other side of it. And there's things she still wants to do in her life. There's impact that she wants to make with her family and her community that's bigger than her. Right. And we were talking the other day and she was having such a hard time. She was saying, I just can't, I can't, I just feel like I'm so down. I feel like I've lost who I am. And then she said it herself. I need to just get out and go for a walk. I always, when I go for a walk, I start to feel better and I start to find purpose. And I said to her, you know, there's a guy named Ivan Tyrrell, who, who's an organizational psychologist, and he wrote this book, uh, The Human Givens. And in it, he says, movement and meaning are inextricably linked. When we move, we find meaning. I mean, have you noticed that when you are running or working out or in the shower, like crazy good ideas come to you? You're in flow? Yes, that is real. And finding those, those realms of movement that allow flow to happen and meaning to present itself from another place. Stephen Pressfield says this all the time. When we find meaning, it's presented by the muse, our God, our higher power, whatever you want to refer to them to. It is a fleeting thing that is presented to us when we are in movement. Now, some people say, well, like I'm sitting at my desk writing. I'm not, that's movement. Or if, you're, if you are doing mindfulness and meditation, you are doing diaphragmatic breathing. That's movement. But it's intentional. It's deliberate. And so it's not about sitting and waiting for that shit to come to you. It is about moving and staying open. And when it comes to you within movement, you take the time to capture it and act on it. So important. And I think that today so many people, they, they just feel stuck. Well, of course you're stuck. You're not moving. So physically get out and move. Right. Put the phone down, close the laptop, get outside, you know, and connect to nature instead of this bullshit represented reality that we have in this entangled mess of our digital devices. Right. We're never going to find meaning in that. We are only going to find meaning in the natural world. Right. And so we have to move and look for ways to move. Now, when the, this is number three, when the muse speaks to you, pay attention and act immediately. I'm using some Stephen Pressfield language here because I think he's one of the coolest dudes on earth, a dear friend, a great author, uh, War of Art. If you haven't read it, you should read it. But he talks about the muse, you know, when you sit down and do your work and, and when you open up to the, the work that's necessary to create, the muse will present itself to you. The muse will present um, the things that you need in life to make an impact. The question is, are you open and are you listening to it? Or are you closed and just dismissive of it? Because you're so focused on your phone or you're so focused on the next thing you have to do that when you get that tap on the shoulder that Churchill talks about, you're not paying attention, right? And so I'm saying that when you're creating a movement, like when I was working on Last Out, you know, when when Bo told me multiple times, Scott, you should write a play, I ignored him. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I ignored him. I was scared of it. I didn't listen to him until finally it, he just said it to me so clearly, and I heard it, and I realized that this was my higher power trying to talk to me. This was because I was so frustrated with how Americans didn't understand that we were still at war. I was so frustrated with seeing my buddies take their own lives and saying, what was the point? And then here, right in front of me, is this opportunity to write a story that I could create that was based on a lot of the experiences of the men and, and, and families that I knew and loved and tell their story. It was right there. The muse was speaking to me, and I finally paid attention, and I acted immediately. I started moving the pen. Monty, at first, I have to say, I don't know that she – like with a lot of the things I come up with – she just kind of stares at me in disbelief, like, is he really doing this shit? And then at some point there's this, okay, I guess he is, 
and then we step off together. This is another important thing. If you're married or if you know you have a significant other, is when the higher power speaks to you or you get that tap on the shoulder, how do you work through that together? How do you hold space for each other? How do you make it happen? When the muse speaks to you, pay attention and act immediately. Okay, next, number four. You've got to guard against resistance. Again, going back to Pressfield, this is self-sabotage. This is that negative self-energy that will come up in you when I said, okay, I'm going to write this play. No, dude, you're an imposter. You're not a playwright. What are you doing? You know how to write a play? You're a Green Beret, man. Green Berets don't write plays. Or what are your buddies going to think? How about this one? Crabs in a bucket. You know how when one crab starts to get out of the bucket, the other ones pull them down, Right. You, what are you doing? What are your friends going to say when you get up on the stage and you start talking about your experiences or your buddy's experiences? Like you're going to make a fool out of yourself. You're going to be a laughing stock to all your Green Beret brothers. That's crabs in a bucket. Or how about this one? You know what? I do like this idea. I'm going to sleep on it and I'm going to start tomorrow. Or better yet, I'm going to go next week when I can kind of get off grid somewhere. I'll work on it then. This is resistance. This is the negative energy, the self-sabotage that stands squarely between you and that higher purpose. And it's going to show up any way that it can. I strongly recommend you read War of Art. I strongly recommend that you pay attention to Pressfield's description of resistance and how it shows up. But in particular, be on the lookout for the imposter syndrome, crabs in a bucket, and procrastination. Guard against resistance because it's your own internal resistance that will likely take you out as you try to create this movement. Right. Uh, my buddy Ben Owen, and he's writing a he, he's writing a book. I think he's doing a project like that. And we talked about how hard that is because you're doing all this other shit. You're doing all these other things, man. That's tough when you're doing all these other things and you're trying to do good in the world and you're trying to do a creative project. It's tough, man. And resistance is going to get in the way. So you have to recognize how resistance shows up and affects you now to counter resistance. And these are kind of sequential here is number five. And bringing in a movement into the world. you got to sit down and do your work, man. At the end of the day, you just have to sit down and do your work. Now, I am adamant about this because I, I work around I'm – you know, I'm a performance coach. I work with a lot of leaders, high performers, and I get so many excuses on why they're not doing something. You know, And it's usually something in their shadow career that they do that can't wait, and that's fine. But the reality is every time that you surrender to that, you surrender your agency. You basically flip the muse the bird and you're like i'm not going to do it and eventually that light's going to burn out so we have to sit down and do our work if you are restoring a tree if you are combating trafficking if you are creating a movement in your community that's going to bring a travel ball team or get you know equipment for the football team I, whatever that wicked problem is that you're overcoming Man, you got to sit down and do your work. Now, I have a system that I teach at Rooftop Leadership. I'm not going to go deep on it here. Uh, maybe one of our podcast episodes will do that. If you like that, let me know, and uh, you know we'll certainly look at it. But basically, you know, it, it's it's called R4, and it's regimen, ritual, rigor, and recovery. By regimen, I mean you got to have a battle rhythm. We call it a battle rhythm in the military, but it's the same series of things that you do every day, whether you're staying at the Marriott, whether you're at home, or whether you're visiting your family at the holidays. If you have a, you have a certain time that you work out, a certain time that you meditate, a certain time that you breathe, a certain time that you work on your project, right? That's not on the calendar. That's in your battle rhythm. The calendar is subservient to that because if you allow the calendar to eclipse it, all the creative shit will always go out the window. That's regimen. The rituals are the things that you do within that battle rhythm that are mind, body, spirit, and craft. Craft being the creation that you're actually doing. Work on mindfulness, work on physicality, and work on spirituality. All of those things are essential as rituals that are sacred in both time and space and activity that you do every day. If you haven't read uh, Atomic Habits, I recommend it. Atomic Habits is a great contributor to the, to the rituals and battle rhythm or regimen that I'm talking about. Rigor is the third R of sitting down and doing your work of R4. Rigor. And that means that you approach every one of your rituals within your battle rhythm with rigor. You're not casual about it, right? You're not up on the treadmill if it's your time for your workout watching Oprah. Like there is a deliberate intentionality to what you do. If you're sitting down and you're working on your project, you, and you've allocated an hour for it, you work 
you know, in 25-minute increments, then you take a five-minute break and then another 25-minute increment. And when you're working, the phone is off. You're not checking messages. It's rigorous. You see what I mean? When you're recovering, which is the fourth R, it's also rigorous. Recovery. We cannot be high performers. We cannot build movements. If you, like, I'll give you an example. I have seen the absolute destruction of the mental and physical and spiritual capacity of so many wonderful humans because of, of, of the Afghanistan withdrawal. I've seen it. It almost took me out again, right, because I felt so much guilt, so much moral injury. I could not hang up the phone, and so I just kept that damn signal up all the time with those alerts coming in all the time. You know, and putting my face down in that dopamine dispenser that is my phone, looking at this represented reality that's not even reality. It's just these text threads and these audio messages and, and execution videos. That's not the world. That's a represented version of the world that sucks, right? But because of that, I was not recovering. I was living in that world all the time, and it nearly took me out, right? And I know people that are still doing it. And they go from one crisis to the next, and they can't get their head out of their phones. And these are wonderful people, but it will take you down because you cannot sustain that level of tempo. You have to have recovery. If you look at high-performing athletes, they spend at least 50% of their time in recovery. Okay, so what am I talking about? Micro-recovery and macro-recovery. Micro-recovery are those little recoveries you do throughout the day to just reset. It might be five diaphragmatic breaths. Right? It might be the, the let-go breath that my counselor Jesse teaches me, my coach Jesse, which is just basically you expand on the inhale, and you let go. That could be it. It could be going to the gym for five minutes. It could be um, a 10-minute walk between your five Zoom or WebEx calls. Right, But whatever you need to do to reset, that's a micro-recovery. you got to do them every day. Turning your phones off, all blue screens down one hour before bedtime. Macro recovery or what it's what Monty and I are doing right now. We are in northwest Arkansas. She is the best in the world at finding VRBOs. And like it's like for me it's like an adventure because I never know what she's gonna find. But I'm literally sitting here right now recording this podcast, looking out at Beaver Lake, and it's like looking at a picture that she built for us. And that's our day. This whole day is a macro recovery. Do you know how long she's had this thing scheduled? Do you know how long it's been on the books? She fights for it. Right? This one is not something you do every day. It's scheduled. It's a date night. It's going to a VRBO. It's a staycation, a vacation. But it's a long-term reset that lets you sharpen the saw and really let your toes uncurl. We need both. We need micro-recoveries that happen every day that are little resets. We need macro-recoveries that are on the calendar that let us get a deeper sense of recovery. They address mind, body, spirit, and sharpening the saw. Okay, so you got to sit down and do your work. That's R4, regimen, ritual, rigor, recovery. Now, number six, to create your movements, have your dreams stare at you. Um, when I did last out, I, <laughs> I, I worked in my garage to – because remember, I didn't start acting till I was 50, and I'd only been at this for like a year – so I would go out in my garage and I would do all of the character development work that I was learning in my acting classes. I would do my breath work and I built an entire mural on the wall of my garage in my gym and I call it my sacred space. I call it my lab. Um, it's where I do my deep work and I go out there and I had this mural. I had Timberwolves, which is my character Danny Patton's spirit animal. I had pictures from SFAS selection. I had pictures of leaders that I didn't like. I had pictures of terrorists that I didn't like. And they all had certain value to components of the story. And I built this mural, and it stared at me all the time. At the same time, I have vision boards. I have a vision board on poster board that's in my office that has all of my big dreams on it. And I have a portable vision board that we actually um, carry around with us. And, um, you know, I'm thinking we might even get that on our rooftop store because I think you guys would like that. We'll look at doing that. But and, and, and whenever I go to a hotel room and I'm working, I'll hang that vision board where it stares at me. Guess what was on that vision board quite some time before it happened? Performing last out on Broadway, performing last out as part of the Gary Sinise Foundation, right? And it was there. 
and I had a dream for that, and there is evidence that shows that people who put their visions on paper where it stares at them, whether they're in declarations where you draw it or in a vision board with pictures, are 35%, up to 35% more likely to achieve their goals. Because remember, humans are meaning-seeking creatures. We navigate the world. We look for meaning. We pursue goals. And if we put the goals where they, we have visual acuity and our ocular focus can lock in on those, man, it changes things because now it starts to become part of your narrative. You are living your story every single day. You, we are narrative creatures. We are story animals. Sean Coyne calls us homo narens, right, the story animal. And you are the protagonist in your story. Like whether you like it or not, you're constantly writing new chapters for your story as you navigate your day. You're the protagonist. And so if you have a visual that is staring at you that gives a new future, right, and a new pattern, because the brain is a metaphorical pattern matching organ, and it's working off old patterns. Well, if you give it new patterns to look at and stare at you all the time, eventually it becomes reality. Please, please, please hear me on this. I've been doing this a long time. And people are always asking me, Scott, how did, you, like, how did you turn pineapple into what you turned it into? How did you turn last out into what you turned it into? Because I took the vision and I operationalized it exactly like what I'm telling you here. I'm not, I don't do anything outside of what I tell you here. And whether it's me speaking on stage, TED Talks, best-selling author for the New York Times, I don't have the qualifications for any of those. But what I do is work in such a way that it leads to these movements, that this happens, and it's the movement I'm explaining to you right now. So have your dreams stare at you. Number seven, five to ten year plans work best. My buddy Bo Eason and I, we talk about this all the time. If you look at a pro, now there's a difference between a pro and an amateur. A pro approaches their world where they look at impact and relevance and meaning. An amateur is all about themselves and their ego. Pros tend to operate on five to ten-year plans, right, in my definition of what a pro is. Um, if you're going to have a strategic impact, if you're going to have strategic relevance, it's just known that it's probably going to take you five to ten years. Talk to anybody who's had a successful small business or medium or large business, and I guarantee you that overnight success took five or ten years to get to that one night. <laughs> it's just the way it is. Last Out's been in development for uh, six years. Um, rooftop leadership's been around for seven or eight years. Uh, village stability operations never really got underway. We had success within two years. But, you know, five to ten year plans are what work best. Now, that is not to say that when fleeting opportunities present themselves that you can't put something together in friggin' days or hours. God knows Pineapple Express and these other groups they self-organized within minutes, right? There is the possibility to do that. But please understand that, that you, you know, just going into that and winging it, it's going to be ugly. Like building the capability to do that kind of thing takes time. So start now. Five to ten-year plans work best. And again, I, don't be scared of that. Know that you'll probably start reaching success much sooner than that. We started reaching success with Last Out the first time we performed it. The first time we performed it, but it took me a year to write it, you know, and I did a couple of little community theater things with some scenes. They were successful, standing ovations, but I knew that wasn't the end of it. And even now with Gary Sinise, as I record this, we're about to do our last show in Topeka. I'll miss working with Gary's Foundation. I'll miss that tour. But I know that that's just – there's just more to do, and they're, they're not part of this next chapter. They were part of this last chapter. This is a six-year, ten-year plan. You see what I mean? And if, once you allow yourself to think in the long term like that, there's no ceiling for you. And there will be episodic success and incremental failures all along the way. You know, my dad and his restoration of the American chestnut, he's had lots of wins with his TED Talk and in, in, in impacting the eastern band of the Cherokee, and he's done documentaries and amazing stuff. But he's also had his share of failures. He's also had his share of frustrations. They're going through some right now. It's just the way it is. It's a five to ten year plan. Any way you slice it, if it's a strategic movement, it's probably going to happen. Now, number eight, uh, this is really important. We talk about communities of practice in part two. Remember that? We talked about communities of practice that have like a common belief, but there's this diverse level of contribution of participants. Um, you really need to map your community of practice. Um, if you 
man, I'll try to get this in the, in this podcast. I'll try to get you a picture. But I, I drew when we were doing Operation Pineapple Express, and I went into my office, and I finally decided, screw it, nobody's coming. We're going to build a team around this. I on a whiteboard, I mapped out the community of practice. I wrote, you know, Mulla Mike. I wrote um, Mike Waltz. I wrote uh, other players that I knew were Green Berets that had connections with. Nizam or had impact that they could bring. They were either champions or catalysts. And that's still on my, it's still on my whiteboard. And the reason is because it reminds me that you got to map your community of practice when you're building a movement. It needs to contain your catalyst, your champions. It needs to contain what it is that they're capable of bringing in one sentence or bullet point. And in, at, at some point, you know, in, in these circles that you draw, you know, like I drew, I think it was Team Nizam in the center. And then there were other circles outside of it. Each of them was either a catalyst or a champion who had their own network, right? And so almost right out of the gate, your community of practice is going to be a, a, a constituency, a federation of circles. Another good example of this, if you've heard me talk about Moral Compass, you know, they're a federation of volunteer organizations that emerged largely from the Afghanistan withdrawal. And each one of them is in their own rights, doing some kind of uh, either evacuation work or work against moral injury, and they have their own community of practice within it. But then this federation of circles is all focused on helping to become the moral compass as veteran-based organizations for our nation. You see what I mean? And so mapping that out is a really important thing to do, and as you do it, be thoughtful, be intentional about it, and be deliberate about it. And the sooner you can start to map out your community of practice, the better. I would not frame the problem in its infancy and then go in and map out the community of practice. What I've found is as the problem presents itself to you and as you decide to step into it, get on a whiteboard, get on a piece of paper, draw in the center what your movement's going to be, and then start drawing those circles on the outside of who needs to be in the room. You know, you can annotate the ones you already have relationships with. You can annotate the ones that you need to have a relationship with. And you can annotate the ones that you don't have a relationship where it's broken or damaged and it needs to be restored, right? And you can use uh, green, amber, red to do that respectively. But map it, and it's really, really important. And then continue to map it as you move from framing the problem, which is discovery, into taming the problem, which is where you start to really execute against it and swarm against it. It'll grow. And if you don't grow your map, your community of practice as you go, it'll overwhelm you. And this happened to me a couple of times with pineapple. Um, it didn't happen to me with the play, though. I always mapped out with the play, and I always kept that under control. So I, one I didn't do as well, one I did pretty well. But map it. Um, now, let me just say this, too. One more caveat on mapping your community of practice. If it's a fast-moving problem, like a crisis – you may not be able to map as well, but still make an effort to do it. And just know that you're going to have to assume some risk in letting some folks in because it's just an uh, unilluminated problem that you're going to have to assume risk to illuminate it. Number nine, uh, be generous with your scars and tell your story of struggle in the service of your movement. This is so important. I, 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 I see people all the time that create these movements, and then they're like, well, I don't want to make it about me, or I don't want to tell my story. I've got too much trauma. And I'm like, well, look, dude, you know, if you're going to build this movement and you're not going to tell your story, then you're not going to make it. Like that movement's not going to make it because people are going to go, well, why won't you, you know, why won't you connect with us? Why won't you tell your story? And for those of you who go, well, I'll just talk about the movement. I'm not going to talk about me. What's personal is universal. Just know this in storytelling, and humans know this. And Dr. Kendall Haven from StoryProof, he says nowadays that in such a low-trust environment that if you omit struggle from your story, your audience will not only not connect with you, they'll turn on you. They will become a narrative or social insurgent to what you're building. I tell you all this because it really is important to be generous with your scars, to tell your story of struggle. If you want to see an example of that, you know, watch my dad's TED Talk. I'll get Wes to put the link in, linked in here. But if for some reason we miss it, just go to an American Tragedy, Rex Man, American Chestnut, Youngstown, Ohio. 
and watch it. And you'll see in the first part of his talk, he talks about his own struggle. He talks about his dad. He talks about seeing the chestnut disappear from his own life and the impact it had on him. And then he transitions to a movement that is restoring the tree. You see what I mean? What's personal is universal. And this is, this, this is what I did with Last Out. You know, I told the story of Last Out in my TED Talk, Generosity of Scars. It had a massive impact. I told my story with, about Last Out to John Androsik, to Tom Brokaw. It got to Gary Sinise. And it ultimately made it to a national tour. This is the way it works. What's personal is universal. But you have to be generous with your scars and tell your story of struggle in the service of your movement. It's not about you. If you're worried, like, well, I don't like to talk about myself or this, this. It's not about you, man. It doesn't have a damn thing to do with you. It has to do with the movement. And if you're not willing to, 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 to share stories that you don't want to tell others and stories that you don't want to tell yourself, I'm just telling you, it's going to be hard for people to get emotionally invested in your movement. And people, people don't follow you because of your logic. They follow you because of their emotional investment in what you're building. And that's how we are as humans. That's the biology of this approach. Number 10, at the end of your talk, if you – and again, I want to credit Bo Eason for this because it really is brilliant. If you say something to the effect of, this is what I'm building, help me build it. You know, Bo says that Americans and Westerners, we are fascinated with this aspect of people who are building things. We love people who are building things, particularly if it's bigger than themselves. Remember going back to number one, it's got to be bigger than you. And when you get to the end of your narrative that encapsulates your movement is to say, this is what I'm building. Pause, breath. Will you help me build it? And guess what? They will. I said a version of this to Gary Sinise. Gary, this is what I'm building. This is our post 9-11 tracers. We are on the front end of a veteran mental health tsunami. This is what I'm building. But if I have you at my side, there's no limit to who we can reach. Will you help me build it? Guess what he did? And I've done this over and over and over again with the likes of Stephen Pressfield, John Androsik, Bo Eason, Gary Sinise, right? The reality is if you're building something bigger than yourself and you're committed to it, it's amazing the people who will come to your aid if you are willing to be generous with your scars and tell your story of struggle in the service of others and culminate that story with this is what I'm building. Will you help me build it? Number 11, you've got to defend your movement against egos and agenda. And man, I can't say this enough. Oh, my God. Woo! Let's go to last out. I don't even know the number of people I've had to say goodbye to with this play. It started a while back with our first iteration of the play, and I'm not going to get into names. They're beautiful, wonderful people. They really are. The people that just couldn't come along for the next chapter, they are. They're beautiful, wonderful people. And you know what? Their contributions made Last Out capable to go to the next level. And this is one of the things that's difficult about being a catalyst in a movement like this is that your, your, your loyalties are certainly to your people, but your loyal, they cannot be bigger than the movement itself. In other words, the agenda and the ego and the objectives of individuals or groups within the movement cannot be bigger than the movement. They can't, or the movement will fail. And it's hard because, you know, there, there are times when people get afraid. They feel like they're being left behind. They feel like they're not being valued. There's a range of fear-based, anger-based actions that start to happen. In-groups and out-groups start to form in movements like this, which is really weird considering most of these are nonprofits a lot of times, but they do. And, you know, at the end of the day, the individual or small group objectives and agenda start to eclipse the broader movement. And guess what? As the catalyst, you either have to nip that shit in the bud or you have to cut it away like debris hanging on the outside of a fuselage of an aircraft that's trying to get airspeed to clear the treetops. If you don't cut it away, you will crash. And that is exactly true here. And guys and girls, I can't tell you how many cuts, hard conversations I've had to have in the six years of the development of this project. It, it's just it's just been what it is. I just countless numbers to include like major cast members and things like that. And and it sucks. But the reality is I know that Last Out serves a purpose of informing civilians on the cost of modern war and helping to validate and heal those who lived it. And that is, man, that's a tall order. 
that's a tall order, and it's so difficult. But like even right now, what's going on with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? You know, there's so much um, division and so much uh, anger and vengeance that at play, and this is going to be a protracted war that will then evolve into a range of moral issues that ultimately revenge is at the heart of, and that will subside. And then all of these hard questions evolve from that. How do I know? Because I'm a post-9-11 veteran who experienced this, who lost his ranger buddy on 9-11 in the Pentagon. And I pursued revenge, and I said many of the things that I see on Instagram and uh, uh, LinkedIn from Israeli soldiers and warfighters and family members. And I don't – listen, I'm not – there's no judgment here at all. That is totally – I get it, man. But I also know how that is. I also know where that ultimately leads, particularly in a protracted conflict. Does that mean you don't go after terrorism if you don't surgically remove it? Absolutely not. But I just know that in the course of doing that, there are all these tough moral issues that evolve. And that soldiers and warriors and family members need the opportunity to explore that and find meaning in it and heal and move from moral injury to moral recovery. That's just the way it is. This play, this story serves that purpose. I cannot allow someone who doesn't feel like they're getting enough props or whatever to get in the way of that important work. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? Now, that's my lived experience. What's yours? That's my Pineapple Express. What's yours? Whatever it is, just know that. God, man, you know, you have to defend the movement against egos and agenda. And, and you, I would say articulate early on what the red lines are and then get everybody to agree to them and then be, be prepared to defend them with veracity because they will be tested. And I don't know what – I don't know if it's the success – you know, if what I call catastrophic success when things start to really move, that people get afraid or angry or whatever, you know, but the dynamics change. And you cannot lose sight of the, of the mission statement and impact and purpose of the movement, you know, and you still want to take care of your people, for God's sake, and you don't want it to be some callous, robotic, bureaucratic organization. But only you can know how to thread that needle. And you have to know going in that you're going to have to defend a movement against egos and agenda. Now, that gets me to number 12. The loneliness of leadership is very real when you're creating a movement. And not everyone can come on the full journey. They can't. They can't come. And the loneliness that goes with that of being a catalyst mostly and a champion to some degree Catalysts are the loneliest sons of bitches on the planet, and that's because of the nature of the work. But the good news is there's other catalysts you can hang out with. <laughs> they seem to be the only ones that understand. But it is lonely work. It is lonely work, particularly because it's purpose-based, and that means that egos and agenda cannot stay. And if they stay, they can't stay very long, right? Because the movement is constantly evolving toward a higher plane of actualism. And, you know, and impact and you cannot allow the, the, the cancerous applications of ego to get in the way of that. And so not everybody can come and it's going to be a lonely job. So how are you practicing your recovery? How does your R4 compensate for that? How are you doing macro recoveries and micro recoveries? Are you doing diaphragmatic breathing after you have a hard conversation and let somebody go? Um, are you doing pre-engagement preparation? Three diaphragmatic breaths, three I have times, who am I, why am I here, what does this person need from me before you have a hard conversation? Are you taking macro recoveries that allow you to recoup? For example, we – let's see. Let's take last out again. The, talking about the lonely work, um, we have hard conversations that have to happen because we're coming out of the Sinise tour and we're going into the new tour. I have a vision of what that's going to be. Some people on the team likely will not subscribe to that vision. That's just the way it is. And some of them are dear friends of mine, but I know where this next level has to go. I know where it has to go. Some people can go on that ride. Some people can't, and that's just the way it is, and God bless them. I love them, and I will look them in the eyes when I tell them what we're doing, but uh, there will be some hurt feelings. I guarantee it, but that's just how it has to be, and that's a loneliness of leadership. Are you willing to pay that price? Are you willing to do that for the good of the impact and relevance of the movement because not everybody can come on the journey? Number 13, we're done. This is the last one. You ready? Uh, I added this one this morning as I've been observing 
what's going on with the Israeli-Palestinian issue, I noticed that although the Topeka show, again, as I record this, Topeka shows next weekend, our last Gary Sinise tour, I haven't said a damn thing about it on LinkedIn. I haven't said a damn thing about it on Instagram. Nothing. Why? Because I've been myopically focused on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I've had my damn head in signal again, trying to help out where I can. But guess what? I surrendered my agency on my movement that I've been building for six years because the powers that be say, no, man, it's time to focus on Israel. Now, before that, they said it's time to focus on the Maui fires. Before that, they said it's time to focus on Ukraine. Before that, they said it was time to focus on Afghanistan. You see what I'm talking about? These mobile dopamine dispensers that we carry around with us, we have become so entangled that we apply our focus and attention, which is the essence of our agency, to whatever those devices say we should. And I'm right there with you. And I've done it. And I'm not saying that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict isn't important. But to the best of my knowledge, there have been global conflicts happening well before the 15 years of the iPhone and the droid. The Android, or whatever the hell it is. Right? Those conflicts have been happening, and you know what? Humans and citizens have continued to do other things that were movements that mattered in their arena. Not everybody is, is required to weigh in or focus on whether or not the incursion into Gaza will be successful, or whether it is right or wrong. I had someone call out to me the other day, um, a statement that they made about don't the children of Gaza deserve, you know, humanitarian treatment? Scott, man, please weigh in. And I'm thinking, you know what? Um, I have an answer to that, but I'm not weighing in on that right now. <laughs> you know, because first of all, the arenas that we operate in, these represented arenas of LinkedIn and uh, Instagram, TikTok, these are digital killing fields, man. They're not designed for civil discourse. And even though that question was a sincere, honest question, and I know the person who asked it was asking it from a sincere place, there is so much emotional heat around it right now that no one's having a civil conversation at all. Everybody is emotionally charged weighing in on this thing. You're either for this or for that, and I get it. I fully understand it. Again, I lost my ranger buddy in the Pentagon. I know where it's all coming from, and you know it is what it is, but at the same time, we all have to exercise agency in our own lives. We have to decide you know, whether or not we're going to give our full attention 18 hours a day to these dopamine dispensers that tell us this represented reality of what we need to be looking at. You know, And a lot of my buddies, I'm starting to reach out to them, are doing the same thing. So if you're listening to this right now, you know who you are. Get back to your movement, man. Right? I mean, I appreciate the fact that everybody is jumping in to help with the Israeli problem, but you know what? I don't necessarily think that's necessary. You know, and maybe that's a callous thing to say, but, you know, a lot of us were doing important things before all this happened, right? We really were. And just, you know, beware of the lemmings, right? The lemmings that run off a cliff altogether. I'm not saying that the conversations on Israel and Palestine aren't important, but just look at the nature of those conversations right now. Most of it is emotional. Um, divisionism. People are like, you're either this or this, and there's no civil discourse happening there. And frankly, there is no um, changing of minds, right? I mean, it's just, it's just not. And I'm deliberately staying away from it because I've just learned that it's a digital killing field, right? There may be a time and place to weigh in on some certain things, but, you know, I think we have to fight against these represented realities. That language that I'm using, by the way, represented reality, is from a guy named Ian McGilchrist. He's a psychiatrist, neuroscientist, one of the most brilliant men I've ever read about. And he, he's written several books, but the first one, if you want to get into this, is The Master and His Emissary. And the divided brain and the making of the Western world. And it really adds a new language and dimension to what we're all dealing with, what's happening right in front of us on LinkedIn and these other platforms as we go into a trance-like state and our primal bi biology informs our modern digital reality and how we've just been sucked into um, this represented reality, this, this left brain activity um, that's not natural for us as humans. And so I go back to my original point here. Exercise agency on your movement, right? 
Beware of the lemmings that are running off the cliff and telling you which direction to go. Fight against represented reality, right? Get out in the woods. Go somewhere quiet. Stay true to your movement. Go against the grain. You know, again, I, there's a lot of good stuff happening with the, the Israeli problem set. There's a lot of good stuff happening with Ukraine. But you know what? My buddy Arash, he reached out to me. He's from Herat, Afghanistan, the western part. And he was like, Mr. Scott, we've had a horrific earthquake and many, many people are dead and wounded. Do you think there's any way that we could raise some funds to maybe help them? And, you know, I actually gave it a shot and I looked at there's nobody cares, man. Like, have you when's the last time if you're listening to this, like and you're listening recently uh, in the October 23 time frame that you've seen anything on an Afghanistan earthquake, <laughs> anything anywhere, right? It is completely consumed with Israel, and I get it, but this is what I'm talking about. This is the, the, the digital domain dictating where you place your attention, where you place your focus in a represented reality. And it, a represented reality, I'm sorry, it's not what I'm interested in. I did that shit with pineapple, and it nearly killed me. You know? And it's not to say that there's not a use for it, but if we're, if we're living in that place all the time, it is going to be very difficult to create movements that make an impact. It really will. So exercise agency on your movement. In your R4, in your battle rhythm, create opportunities for you to get outside. You know, one of the things I do is I don't check my phone, and I still have to battle against this, particularly since I got involved with the Israel stuff, but I don't typically check my phone until I've done my journaling and reflections for the day in the morning. I don't. Because I know the second I check that phone, everybody else's agenda is going to come into, into, my, into my focus. And I'm not going to have the agency that I need to work on my movement and what's prioritized for the day. That works for me. Find what works for you. But whatever you do, exercise agency on your own movement. And don't let the represented reality of the digital domain and your entanglement with it tell you what it needs to be. And if it is, fight it. Find ways to disentangle. And boy, will that be the topic of some future podcasts. So there it is. We are, we are wrapped at part three of three of uh, Blind Luck or Intentional Revival. We've talked about the art and science in terms of who it takes. We've talked about what it takes. And we've talked about into action principles that can help you overcome the big problems, wicked problems that you face when you're surrounded and outnumbered. And it's with a self-organizing system. And there is an approach to it. And now that you have this language, um, I'm going to refer to this a lot. This will be a foundational series that we will refer to a lot. And whenever someone's building a movement, I'm going to push them here first. But you're going to, you're going to hear me use this language a lot as we go forward with our podcast and fight through all of the other things that are pressing us to pull back into Afghanistan and Israel. I'm going to fight through that. I'm going to try and try to keep us on, on the focus of what does it take to – operationalize the upswing in our own arena. What is it going to take for us to determine and create our own Pineapple Express and move to better days with bottom-up leadership and not be dependent on everybody telling us what we need to focus on and not be at the mercy of institutional leaders who are not stepping up, right? You have your own agency. You have your own capability. We've never had access to this kind of technology and influence. So, I hope this approach serves you. I hope this approach will now give you both a language, a methodology, a grammar to, to come at this stuff and really uh, take it to the next level and that we operationalize our upswing much like Robert Putnam talks about and that we move into the better days and that we move people to the rooftop to do the things that they are capable of doing so that we leave this world for our kids better than we found it. That is where we are. I hope this series served you. Thanks for what you do, and I'll see you on the rooftop. What's going on, teammates? You know, the other day I was talking to one of the folks that I coach, and he told me, you know, Scott, I get so much anxiety before I present or before I get up in front of a room of people, and it seems to get worse. And I can just tell that this individual, I'll call him John, he, he felt very, very embarrassed about that. And my question to you is, do you experience this as well? Do you get that kind of sweaty palms, cracking voice, shuffling of your feet, feeling like an imposter? Well, whenever you get up in front of people, if those kind of things are happening, you know, the reality is they are natural. But in this time of low trust, you, you start to look like you don't trust yourself. And if you look like you don't trust yourself, believe me, the people in front of you aren't going to either. 
And, and that's not the way it needs to be because you have way too much to say in a time when it needs to be heard. And I know I've been there. I've had that debilitating anxiety. I've felt those same kinds of stage fright uh, and fear-inducing symptoms. But I also found a way to fight through it over the last 10 years. I've done three TED Talks, hundreds of iterations as a keynote speaker, a news analyst on CNN and Fox, and also an actor for, for hundreds of performances of my award-winning play, Last Out. And what I've come to learn is that there is a way to own every single room and overcome that anxiety and actually put it to work in the service of others. But what you have to do is you have to prepare, you have to engage, and then you have to recover. And that three-step approach is what I'm going to be teaching at Own Every Room in River Ranch, Florida, March 2nd through 3rd, 2024. And you definitely want to come to this. If anything that you've heard, if you've located yourself in this story, go to the link and sign up right now because what's going to happen is if you come and do this work with me out where nature is our stage, you're going to feel fully expressed, you're going to feel heard, and you're going to get a real sense of your own power through your narrative competence and your ability to move that anxiety and energy out to the people you serve where it doesn't jam you up. Or you can stay on the path that you're on, which is very predictable, and feel like you don't trust yourself, and it's going to be hard to get others to trust you as well, and the stakes are too high for that. So just start by signing up before we sell this thing out. Come join me at Own Every Room, March 2nd and 3rd. I'll see you on the rooftop. Oh.